I think the difficulty with a passage like this is you kind of open it up and everyone's like shock and awe at the beginning. It's hard to listen, isn't it? Because you get prince of demons within the first verse. And what do you do with that from that point onwards? The existence of and the present work of kind of dark satanic forces is hard for us to comprehend, isn't it? And we struggle with that lots in our rational kind of Western existence. The concept of a dark, malevolent, kind of supernatural, angelic agent is difficult. And as Christians, we accept, I think, many of us, well, I hope, if you are a Christian, you accept the supernatural work of God, demonstrated through his son, the Lord Jesus. That's kind of a non-negotiable, isn't it, of the Christian faith? But I think if we're honest, many of us struggle to acknowledge the work of Satan, of demons, the devil, even though we know many passages where Jesus uh, comes into conflict with Satan. And we all know other passages, for example, in Paul's writings, so Ephesians 6, to take up the armour of God. Why? To take on the devil's schemes, he says. But what do we really expect that to look like now? Now, one danger when we consider the work of Satan, devil, and, and so on, the demons, is to kind of overestimate his power and work. Yes, he's the deceiver. That's what the name devil means. So he's not equal to God. There's not kind of a dualistic thing going on here. His power is very limited now, as we'll see later in the passage. So we must be warned from overestimation. But I think often our danger is quite the opposite. I don't know, one of my favourite ever films, legendary film, The Usual Suspects. Does everyone remember that? All the old people are. We're, <laughs> we're all nodding. Usual Suspects, great, great film. It finishes with this quite haunting line. It says this, the, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world he didn't exist. We struggle. Because how true that is. We struggle because... We, Often, you know, because we don't have kind of demon-possessed people walking down the streets of kind of Earlsville and Southfields, do we? But does that mean that the devil is not at work? C.S. Lewis wrote a really wonderful little book called The Screwtape Letters. And uh, it was really a conversation with kind of a senior, the, the devil, with his, with his underling demons, if you like. And it, it's written from that perspective, and it's kind of an instruction book for uh, the, the, the young demons to be instructed by the devil in their work of deceiving and uh, so on. Let me read a short extract as the devil instructs a junior demon. The devil says about God here, never forget that we are dealing with, uh, sorry, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are in a sense on the enemy's ground, on God's ground, the devil is saying. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, God's, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy, God, has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. It's very clever, isn't it? The devil is very much at work. 
but in much, much more subtle ways. And we would be wise to understand the conflict that is happening in our own hearts, in our own lives, day by day. Oh, the devil can uh, uh, use God-given pleasures for his own deceitful intentions. You know, you get something new, get a new job, new house, whatever it is. Good things. How easily, though, we can be deceived. That God-given pleasure can be then used for our own gain, for our own glory, for our own purposes rather than God's. There's a battle going on. And that battle, that conflict, is right at the centre of our passage today. And it really is a conflict between two kingdoms. Jesus has been showing himself, demonstrating that he is the long-awaited Messiah, the eternal king of God's kingdom. It's a truth that he proclaimed. So Matthew 5 to 7, what's called the Sermon on the Mount, he's proclaimed that truth. Now he's demonstrated it through miracles in the second chunk of Matthew's Gospel, 8 to 10. Uh, And now we get conflict. We get these uh, kind of wranglings between him and the Pharisees in these chapters we've been looking at. Accusations are flying. flying, And he demonstrates that you're either part of his kingdom or you're part of Satan's kingdom. I think the hardest thing, if you like, about this passage today is to realise there is no neutral ground. There is no fence to sit on. Jesus, essentially what he's writing, saying here to the Pharisees in this conflict, he is essentially drawing a line in the sand, a very deep and clear line. And he's saying, you're either on my side or you're on Satan's. You're either in my kingdom or his kingdom. Now, I'm really sorry, I can't make this any easier to stomach. These are Jesus' words. But before we dive in, let me just give you a couple of tips, if you can. Uh, Firstly, most importantly, look at the line that Jesus draws and work out which side you're on. And then secondly, prayerfully consider those that you know. Think of neighbours. Think of colleagues that you sit a metre away from. Think of your loved ones and your friends and work out which side of the line they're on and pray for them accordingly. Cast your eyes down. Look at the passage. It begins with this scene. Uh, uh, The scene is set by accusations beginning to flow. Look at verse 22. This demon-possessed man who's blind and mute is brought to Jesus. Jesus heals him. Uh, The demon is removed, but Jesus... In his such powerful word, now the man can both talk and see. And the crowd gather. Uh, You can imagine. This amazing thing has happened before them. Uh, And we see their response. Look at verse 23. All the people were astonished. Something extraordinary has happened, hasn't it? Right in front of their eyes. They don't fully understand what's going on. They know something amazing, something powerful has happened. In fact, look at, they start speculating. Look at halfway through verse 23. They say, could this be the son of David? They draw, if you like, an obvious conclusion. God has promised since uh, one Samuel that, that an eternal king would come in the line of David. An eternal king who would reign forever. But in his coming, there will be wonderful, powerful healings, driving out demons. And the crowd, they're astonished. They're starting to get it. 
They're beginning to understand that Jesus is the king of God's eternal kingdom. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, we see them here. They're already plotting to kill Jesus. We've seen that earlier in this chapter. What do they try and do? They try and shut him down. Stop the speculation. They they can see where the crowd are going. They need to knock that on the head straight away. Look at verse 24. The Pharisees heard this. They said this. uh, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. The Pharisees had already accused Jesus of being a demonic power back in chapter 9. But it's interesting what they're doing, isn't it? They're doing exactly what happens today in so much of our kind of media. Here was Jesus threatening position and thinking, uh, and they're thinking as well. And what do they do? Do they seek a kind of an intellectual debate? No. They slander and they start a smear campaign. Oh, they want to kill Jesus. But the problem with uh, that is that they first got to kill him as a character. They've got to go straight for him and who he is. Kill character first, vilify him, demonise him, call him a bigot. He's a Pharisee phobic. That's what he is. That's what they're saying. This man is Pharisee phobic. Let's shut him down. And then they can kill him. That's the setting. How does Jesus respond? Well, that's the rest of the passage. And three points to summarise Jesus' response. And remember, please remember, this is a fight. This is a massive conflict. Uh, in this conflict, there's a, a divided kingdom cannot stand. Look at the four points on your sheets there. We'll run through them fairly quickly now. In this conflict, God's kingdom is advancing. In this conflict, you are either with Jesus or against him. And in this conflict, our hearts determine which side we're on. Look down at verses 25 through to 28 now. We're on page 978 of your Bibles. A divided kingdom cannot stand. Now the exposing truth at the beginning of verse 25 is, is true for all of us, isn't it? Jesus knew their thoughts as much as he knows your thoughts right now. Yes, even now. And the Pharisees think that they've got control of the situation. They think they've got the power and the authority to stomp on Jesus and fulfil their plans to kill him. But once again, Jesus looks right into their hearts and begins to respond to their accusation. Look at halfway through verse 25. And he says to them, every kingdom is divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Oh, it's just like... In a sense, he's laughing at their argument. It's pitiful as an argument. Jesus states a very simple and obvious kind of folk wisdom back to them. A truism. Something that's so, so obvious to the crowd and everyone around. And he talks about conflict. It's like a civil war, he's saying. If a country is divided and they fight against each other, it's just ruined. You're killing each other off. I'm trying hard here not to make any Brexit parallels, but we move on. But in the last civil war, did you know in this country, in the last civil war in this country, 3.6% of the population were killed. Now, a few weeks ago, we, we commemorated, didn't we, World War I. Terrible loss in this country. But less than half the lost percentage of the, cap- uh, of the population. Because civil wars, you're fighting against each other. A kingdom divided is a kingdom ruined. 
And the same principle is true in a, in a city or a household. Parents, for example, if you're divided on things, discipline, whatever, ruin. Children will see your division and exploit it ruthlessly. Well, the parents are chuckling to ourselves because we know how true that is. Principle is true in a church family too, which is why we unite around one thing. We unite around God's word and, and Jesus is proclaimed through that word. Anything else would split us apart. With the power of the Holy Spirit, we stand united in Christ. Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. It will not stand, Jesus says. It's obvious. And Jesus follows it with another very simple point in verse 26. The Pharisees' accusation that Jesus is the prince of demons just makes no sense. If he is demonic, if Jesus is demonic, why would he, why would he drive out one of his own mates, his own demon friends, out of another person? Satan is, drives out Satan. He's divided against himself. How can his kingdom stand? It's obvious. Verse 27. He uses their argument then on them, back onto them. Look at verse 27. If you drive out a demon by a Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? You see, Jesus is pointing back to them. Well, um, this is a time in history where demon possession was essentially at its height. There were people going around calling out demons in Jesus' name and in Paul's name as well. For example, if you go to Acts 19, there's this hilarious story. Uh, the sons of Sceva, he was a priest, um, and um, he was a Jewish priest, and the sons were going around about from town to town and driving out demons in the name of Jesus and of Paul. Let me read to you a couple of verses from Acts 19, because it's quite funny. Uh, One day, the evil spirit answered them, sons of Sceva, Jesus I, I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man who had an evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. I'm not making it up. It's Acts 19, verse 14 onwards. Jesus' point, though, here, if he's driving out evil spirits by Beelzebul, who are the Pharisees' people? Who are the Jews that are going around? Who are they driving out evil spirits? In the name of, in the power of. Oh, Jesus makes it very clear in verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom has come. The crowd were right, you see. The son of David is stood before the Pharisees, anointed and empowered by the Spirit of God. He is the king. Of God's good eternal kingdom. And that kingdom is being ushered into the world through him, through Jesus. The problem with the Pharisees, though, like so many of us, they're not putting the bits of evidence together. They aren't prepared to look properly. They just feel threatened. And so they come out fighting with a smear campaign. So we've got the crowd, yep. They're beginning to put the evidence together. We've got the Pharisees who are trying to push people away from the truth. And they're so like so many people in our culture today, aren't they? The Pharisees. You know those kind of people that walk around in our culture? You see them on the news and say, no one knows really what God is like. They're trying to undermine the evidence. The irony is, if no one knows what God is like, nor do they... 
So on what evidence can they say what they're saying? It's just utter nonsense, the kind of people that, things that people say at the moment. And some people will say things like this. All paths lead to God. How do they know? Have they been along every path to God? Of course not. And again, it's, non, it's a nonsensical statement intended to push anyone away from the real evidence of who God is. And look, friends, if you're a non-Christian here today, you're hugely welcome. Let's chat after the service. It's great that you're here. It's great that you're asking questions. But don't believe me. And don't believe anyone that you're sitting next to about who Jesus is. I could make up anything. and so good any of us here. Don't believe people like these Pharisees and say, oh, you know, it's our way or no way. No. Instead, go to the evidence. God has given us, in his word, the Bible. In a sense, come straight to Jesus, like the crowd in this passage. Don't listen to anyone else. And likewise, as Christians, it's very tempting, isn't it, when we're speaking to our non-Christian friends, to think... We've got to have all the clever arguments in order to answer all of their questions in the best way possible. And yes, of course, we need to be able to give a defence for our faith and so on. There's a place for that. But the most important thing with our non-Christian friends is to buy them a coffee and open up the Bible and let Jesus do the work. With the power of his spirit. Rub their noses in the evidence of who Jesus is. Don't get in the way, basically. And so we've seen Jesus respond to the Pharisees' accusation. They're saying he's the prince of demons. And Jesus shows first that a divided kingdom cannot stand. Their, Their argument's nonsense. And secondly, he shows God's kingdom is advancing. Verse 29, very simply. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions? Unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Now remember, this is a... A kingdom, uh, it's a a spiritual battle between two kingdoms. And here it's compared to a burglary. I turn to Tim now, our our kind of a resident policeman. Uh, But again, the illustration is so simple, we can all understand it here, okay? Jesus points out that if anyone comes into your house to take your things, you're going to do something, aren't you, to sensibly stop that person. Oh, you might make some noise, you might turn on the lights, you might phone the police. All of those sensible, right things that you do. If someone comes into your house, take your stuff, you'll do something, won't you? And if a burglar comes into, your, into a house and wants to walk out with possessions, what does he have to do? He has to firstly then tie up the owner of the house. The strong man, if you like. Only then can he plunder your house, take all the possessions. And Jesus here is simply describing what is happening spiritually as he comes to earth. He's coming into this world in which Satan has been the strong man. And Jesus is coming in sense to Satan's house and he binds up him up and takes the plunder. He takes his possessions. Jesus is saying he's going to take men, women and children uh, to himself to be part of his good eternal kingdom. And this is why Jesus has come. To save people. Through his death on the cross and his resurrection to new life. Through faith in him, we can, if you like, be saved from that house 
to his house, to his good eternal kingdom. Do you remember reading Hebrews 2 recently? We do Hebrews in small groups. Hebrews 2, verse 14. By his death, Jesus, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery. Jesus, you see, has come to free prisoners for a new life in his kingdom. What Jesus is showing is that his kingdom is now advancing. Satan's kingdom is being plundered because he has been bound. Through Jesus' death on the cross, he has been bound. His power is limited. Now, the imagery being used here is very black and white. You see, you're either Jesus' possession or or Satan's. You're in Jesus' house or Satan's house. And this very clear distinction follows in in the following... In the following verses, from verse 30 to 32. Because in this conflict, third point, we see you're either with Jesus or you're against Jesus. Look at verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. That smacks very, very hard against a kind of pluralistic culture that we live in. In this conflict for souls, in this spiritual warfare, there is no fence. To sit on. Jesus says, it's not me. I'm not saying, Jesus says there are no neutral bystanders. Are you with Jesus? Or are you against Jesus? In Jesus coming, he makes everything clear between us and God. And and, in a sense, what he's doing is he's saying, you've got to pick a side. And do it now. God's kingdom is advancing, or or Satan's kingdom is being plundered. You pick which side you want to be on. The problem is there's just no option to sit on a fence. As I said, Jesus is, right at the beginning, uh, Jesus is making this so clear. A very clear line is being drawn, and we have to decide which side we're going to stand on. And many of us here wonderfully are standing, of course, with Jesus. We identify as being with him. uh, And through faith in him, we're united to him. We are with him. But note what Jesus says in the end of verse 30. There's such a challenge. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus throughout Matthew has been uh, depicted as a harvesting figure. Look at the end of chapter 9, for example. He is the one who gathers his people on the last day. Uh, You will either be in his eternal kingdom or not. But this statement is also a rebuke to the Pharisees and the crowd. A warning that I hope we hear. A warning that failure to follow Jesus wholeheartedly in his gathering work. And I quote this because I want you to hear it from and since the most foremost scholar on Matthew's Gospel, Don Carson, in the whole world, he says this. If you don't follow Jesus wholeheartedly in his gathering work, it is, a, is as dangerous as outright opposition. Do you hear the warning? Oh, it's so easy, isn't it, for us to say, I'm, I'm with Jesus. With your close friends here at church. Is that evidenced in his gathering work? 
That is in, in making him known. In proclaiming the gospel. If you are with Jesus, that will be evidenced in a heart that longs to gather people to him. The heart is the issue. And that's how the passage finishes. We'll come to that in a bit. But hear the warning. You either stand with Jesus, the gatherer, or you are against him. But a warning that is hard to hear is followed by a beautiful offer of grace. Do you hear it? Look at verse 31. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. We all sin, don't we? We all fail God at times. We all mess up. But all of us, however quiet we've been about our faith, whatever we've done, it can be forgiven as we come to him and seek his forgiveness. How awful, however dirty, however treacherous our lives have been. Our rebellion against God can be made clean as we put our trust in Jesus. This is wonderful news, isn't it? It's the liberating news of the gospel that Jesus has secured. But here's a difficult part, isn't it? There's one thing that can't be forgiven. Do you see that? Blasphemy against the, Holy, against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Now, I've got to be clear here. I wish I had more time on this, because it's quite complicated, but Jesus isn't drawing a line between himself and the Holy Spirit here, saying you can blaspheme against me or, uh, or can sin against me, but not blaspheme against the, the Holy Spirit. Rather, what he's saying here is that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is that intentional, willful, persistent rejection of the Spirit's work in our lives, that cannot be forgiven. Now, the Holy Spirit's role is mainly to reveal Christ and to point us to the truth of Christ found in the Bible. And so to reject the Holy Spirit is to reject the good news of Jesus Receiving it and proclaiming it, which if persistently and intentionally done, he's saying cannot be forgiven. Again, if you're, if you're not here and you're not a Christian, uh, um, please, please, please don't harden your hearts and look at this and go, oh, no. Look at verse 31 and say, I can be forgiven. Know the assurance of forgiveness for your sins. And come to Jesus and put your faith in him. Come and enjoy being on his side in his kingdom. A kingdom that you can join today and be in forever. But it says what will determine which side we're on in the end. Verse 33 to the end. Look at it. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognised by its fruit. You brood of vipers, he says to the Pharisees. How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. But you see, the problem wasn't just the words of the Pharisees. He goes on, verse 35. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. This is a heart problem. It is our hearts which will determine which side we're on. See, the Pharisees, you look at them, they're the religious elite. They look so wonderful to the world watching world. They seem to be such great men of God. 
but their hearts, they were hard. The following verses are a warning to anyone who considers that perhaps their background, their mum and dad, their position in society, their wealth, their popularity, if you consider anything of those that will count for you on the last day before God, well, hear the warning. Verse 36. I tell you that anyone will have to, everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. Our hearts will determine which side we are on. And Jesus has drawn a very clear line in the sand. Which side are you on? Has your heart been transformed as you receive the gospel through faith? As the Spirit of God has entered your heart as the guarantee of an eternity to come in God's good eternal kingdom? And if that is true of you, how thankful are you for that? That your heart has been transformed in that way. Do you delight in Jesus? In his death and resurrection, what he's achieved for you? Do you engage in, to honour him in his gathering work, telling people about him? I wonder... If you're a Christian today, as you look over the line, who do you see? Do you have compassion for them? And if you do, speak to them. Because whoever is not with me, Jesus says, is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Let's pray as we close. Why don't we just have a moment of quiet prayer to consider our own, where we are. But also maybe pray for some of those that we know who are on the wrong side of that line.